Hello, this is TechBiter Worldwide, formerly Technology Corner, for the week of February 25th, 2007. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in far less than an hour. That's because we leave out the sports, the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Perhaps you're hoping to hear a discussion of how to reduce the size of audiophiles this week. I did promise that, after all. But it's not going to be this week. It'll be next week. I do have an excuse, however, maybe even an alibi. I spent the week in New York City and had hoped to be able to work on it a bit while I was there. That turned out not to be the case. So, reducing the size of audiophiles, that'll be next week's topic. In the meantime, I picked out some questions, and at least one of them does have something to do with audio. I've had a couple of questions about how to listen to the MP3 version of the program without using iTunes, and in some cases without using any other podcast player. For example, how can I download an MP3 version without going through Apple's QuickTime? Was the way one question started. It continued... I do not want to mess with Apple. They gave me enough trouble in the years I was Apple only before I switched to PCs and still messed with my computer with a QuickTime mess. Well, there's a way to do this, but you may want to know a little bit about my numbering scheme and maybe a little bit about RSS, which is called Really Simple Syndication. RSS uses extensible markup language, which is abbreviated XML, provides a link to both text and audio files. Most news-related sites and blogs now carry an RSS tag. You'll see that usually. It's orange. And if you click that, you end up subscribing to the RSS feed. I should point out, and it's important to keep in mind, the TechBiter Worldwide podcast is available Sunday morning. Usually the print version, or more accurately, the web version, is available on Saturday. But the audio version is not ready In fact, it's not even recorded until Sunday morning. So if you don't want to use Apple's iTunes software to listen to TechBiter Worldwide, here's one possibility. Google offers an RSS aggregator application. If you subscribe to Google Reader, it will automate the process for you and also appears to take over your primary browser. I'm not quite sure I like that idea. Since I've installed the Google Reader on Firefox, if I click an RSS feed, it offers to add that feed to the Google Reader. I guess that's logical, but I wish that Google had asked before just making the assumption that that's what I wanted. Because of that, Firefox no longer takes me directly to the TechBiter Worldwide RSS page. However, if you use a link that I show on the website, www.techbiter.com, forward slash rss, forward slash tc dot rss, and you haven't installed Google Reader, then it'll take you directly to a page that shows all of the files that are available. And if you have Flash installed, you'll have the ability to play the audio directly from that page. Of course, you can also go to the TechBiter Worldwide website on Sunday morning after I get everything installed and play the file directly from the website page. But here's another option. If you haven't installed Google Reader, navigate to the directory where I store the podcast files. In most cases, subdirectories of websites are not directly navigable by visitors. I've decided in this case to allow the podcast directory to be one that people can browse if they want to. 
That's www.techbiter.com forward slash podcast. If you go there, you'll see a directory of all of the MP3 files that I've used for podcasts. You can left-click and listen directly on the site with whatever your default MP3 player is, or you can right-click and save the file to your computer. Files have names such as pod20070218.mp3. That's not a bunch of random numbers. Pod is, of course, just my indication that it's a podcast. 2007 is the year. 02 is the month. 18 is the day. And the .mp3 indicates it's an mp3 file. So you can pretty quickly and easily figure out which one you want to take a look at. So there are some ways that you can listen to the podcast without having to deal with Apple's iTunes or any one of the other applications, even though I still think that Apple's iTunes is the way to go for podcasts. So maybe you're wondering what an RSS feed is. RSS gives providers of sites with changing content a way to push that content to those who want it. For example, you might routinely check a dozen or so websites or blogs every day, problem is not all of them may change every day or maybe even every week. Perhaps some of them change hourly or even more frequently. You'd like to know it when there's something new, but you don't want to have to visit every site every day or every hour or every few minutes just to see what's there. That's where the RSS feed comes into play. If you use an RSS aggregator such as Apple's iTunes or Juice or Google Reader, you have what is the equivalent of a website inbox, like your email inbox. The aggregator program scans all of your RSS feeds on a regular basis and alerts you when there's something new. Google Reader looks like it'll be a winner in this regard. Got a question regarding Vista. Last week I cited several reasons that I will not be installing Vista right away, and among the reasons I listed was this one. The system I have works just fine the way it is. At that time, I said that's the weakest of all possible reasons. When cited as a reason for avoiding change, we've always done it this way, simply infuriates me. And I thought it was odd that I'd listed that first, because I've always enjoyed change and the challenge change brings, particularly in the realm of technology. So I figured that that could be a viable reason for me only if it's related to the other reasons. And of course, it was. Well, I received a comment. The comment said, I think you underrate the fact that what I have is working for me is a reason not to go to Vista. I submit that there is not reason to change to something more wonderful unless it addresses things I cannot do and need to. Otherwise, I trash money and experience and invite upgrade frustration that I don't need to experience what I do now, only experience it differently. I rode the upgrade wagon when customers kept coming in with files that I couldn't handle for several years. I never really saw a significant improvement in performance. Stuff crashed and locked up in each and every upgrade, just differently from the last version, and it always took a bigger machine to use it. At this point, I do not have things I can't do, except for some Photoshop capabilities not built into elements. Why would I trash things I do without needing to think about them to take up a system that trashes everything I know? Mr. Gates will need to show me something I don't know I need to be able to do to sell me on this one but he doesn't seem to be working very hard at telling me why to supply his need to give money to worthy causes. My answer to that is essentially one word, and that word is security. Vista, even though I'm not upgrading right away, is more secure than XP. There's no question about that, and there's no question about the need for security. The problem is that Vista is sometimes so secure that after it's been installed, the user cannot connect the computer to anything. 
okay, cheap shot, but I've heard of that happening. Vista probably is going to be something like radial tires and disc brakes. We drove cars for a lot of years without having radial tires or disc brakes. All the Europeans had them, but what did they know? We hadn't experienced them. We didn't know what it would be like. We didn't know we'd like them. I imagine that Microsoft would be delighted if every computer owner went out and bought a copy of Vista right now. But the management of Microsoft knows that's not going to happen. Vista includes refinements and improvements that are not compatible with earlier versions of the operating system. As programs take advantage of those new features and eventually come to market, the buying decision is going to be made for you. Of course, there's no reason to upgrade if the machine you have right now and the applications you're using right now continue to do everything you need to do. As an example, I knew a guy in the 1960s who continued to drive a Model T Ford to work. He didn't have to drive very far. The Model T was reliable enough to get him where he needed to be. It was a Model T with a crank starter, and not one of those ones with the silly newfangled push-button starters. It had a crank. And I remember the car had several levers, three, maybe four, that had to be set just right to get the engine to start. I remember that the car made a lot of noise. I remember that it smelled funny, and I remember that it wasn't very fast. But I lived in a small town at the time, and that was all this guy needed to get to work. Computers, operating systems, and applications that run on those computers are essentially the same. If what you have fits your needs, there is no reason to change. Got some wireless questions. This was an interesting series of questions from someone who's going to be moving and after being on dial-up for a lot of years is going to have Wi-Fi available. The question was, can wireless coexist with my dial-up account temporarily at least? At least that was the first of several questions. Well, yes, you can have a lot of network connections. You could have a wired connection that connects directly to a router, a wireless connection that connects directly to the same router, and a dial-up connection. You can have all of those active simultaneously. I don't necessarily recommend doing that, but it's certainly no big deal having a dial-up and a wireless connection operating simultaneously. Next question, what are the wireless options for dealing with email? Gmail and other web-based options seem to be the main possibilities. I have everything organized to my liking with Outlook Express and would love to avoid a complete overhaul, at least for a couple of months. Is this possible? Well, if you have a domain name, and the person who asked the question does have a domain name, your Internet presence provider probably offers the ability to create one or more email accounts. If not... Services such as GoDaddy will allow you to set up some accounts for a nominal annual fee, 20 bucks or less. That's 20 bucks a year, not a month. Your current dial-up email account will continue to be available via dial-up for as long as you pay for it. It'll probably be available via the wireless connection, but you'd need to check with your Internet service provider to see if they will allow access that way. Gmail and other web-based systems will continue to be available just as they have been in the past. They'll just be faster now. You might also be given an email inbox by your wireless provider. You should confirm, though, that the wireless provider is not an open system. That is, that it encrypts connections and requires a user ID and password or some sort of passcode to use. 
This is particularly important if you plan to use the wireless connection for financial transactions or if you're planning to overthrow the government. Next question about wireless. What do I need in the way of hardware and software? And how do I tell if my desktop, less than three months old, running Windows XP already has it? Well, the network software is all going to be there. Desktop computers rarely have wireless hardware built in. Some of them do, though, these days, but most of them don't. You can easily add an adapter. If this had been a laptop computer, it almost certainly would have had Wi-Fi already built into it. And by the way, if you have to put wireless in a desktop computer, I would recommend obtaining a card that has provisions for an external antenna, one that is outside the computer box, putting a high-frequency antenna inside a metal box will not allow it to work very well. The further away from the computer you can get that antenna, up and away from the computer so that the metal box is not shielding the antenna, you'll get a better signal. Final question regarding wireless. For antivirus and general security, so far I've done just fine with common sense and AVG antivirus. Do I have to start thinking about firewalls and all that jazz? Yes, any computer, even dial-up, should have a firewall. Windows XP comes with half a firewall. I recommend turning that one off and obtaining the free firewall from Komodo. There's a link to that from the TechBiter Worldwide website, or you can just go directly to www.komodo.com. Hey, some exciting news I heard from Joe Bradley. If you remember Joe from Technology Corner on WTVN, You know that we frequently talk about him thinking about buying a new computer. He has finally replaced his Sinclair Z80. Okay, he doesn't really have a Sinclair Z80. Probably never had a Sinclair Z80. But his computer wasn't exactly up to date. I mean, we talked about him thinking about replacing that computer for at least five years. Well, on February 16th, I received a news bulletin. Yep, finally did it. Bought a new computer. Got it the other day at Dell, dual core, 2.8 gigahertz, nothing fancy. But it is new. Now to transfer the files from the old and the new. And Joe asked what I thought would be more efficient. Null modem cable or just transferring through file sharing in Windows. Well, I suggested the network cable version of a null modem, and I heard from Joe again on February 18th, asking how to set up the cable. I may have given him some bum advice. In fact, I prefaced my advice with this statement. It's been a while since I've done this, but I believe it's pretty easy. Each machine's going to need a static IP address. All that matters is the first three triads are the same, because they won't be on the Internet at the same time, but you probably want to use 129.168.1.0. And I recommended .002 and 129.168.1.0.0.3. Once you've done that, you'll need to share the drive on the old computer and map the drive from the new computer. At that point, you should be able to just drag and drop files. Well, in the final analysis, Joe chose to buy an external USB drive and use that for moving files. That's a pretty quick, easy solution. And there's a plus there, too. The external drive can be used for backup. So, we welcome Joe to the current century. Although this has nothing much to do with technology, I thought I'd mention JetBlue. Mentioned that I had been in New York last week, and I had planned to fly JetBlue from Columbus to JFK on Monday, February 19th. However, Sunday morning, I received a call from JetBlue. They told me the flight was being canceled because of those ice storms in the east. This is what got JetBlue a lot of bad publicity. That, of course, wasn't good news, but it was better than having me show up at the airport on Monday, only to be told that the flight 
had been canceled or the equipment isn't available. I've had that happen. I ended up rebooking on Delta, but my return flight to Columbus was still on JetBlue. And I still like JetBlue. When I received the call from JetBlue on Sunday morning, I was told that I could take the same flight on Tuesday. That's the option I accepted initially. Receive credit for a future flight or receive credit on my credit card for the entire flight. Well, initially, I decided to fly on Tuesday, but just an hour or so later realized that wasn't going to be acceptable because I had a midday meeting on Tuesday in Brooklyn. So I canceled the JetBlue flight and ended up booking on Delta to JFK Delta's Comair division. JetBlue's honesty is, I found, somewhat unusual. I've flown enough to know that when there are problems, you can't often expect a straight story from anyone related to the airline. When I asked the person from JetBlue who had called me on Sunday morning if I could rebook the airline's earlier flight on Tuesday, he told me the plane used for that early flight is scheduled to come in on Monday and sit overnight in Columbus. Because all the flights are canceled, the plane probably won't be here, he told me. In other words, not holding out any false hope. Thanks for that. Later, I realized that JetBlue had charged me a $25 change fee. I suspected that was an error, of course, and sent a message requesting clarification. The $25 cancellation fee that was accidentally added has already been removed. In the meantime, I received a personal apology from the customer service folks. It was an individually written message. I also received an automated response from the customer service folks, and I received a broadcast email from the company president, similar to ads that they've run in the New York Times, the Columbus Dispatch, and other newspapers in cities that JetBlue serves. Well, I returned to Columbus on JetBlue. The service was exactly as expected. On the plane back to Columbus, two guys in front of me were giving the flight attendant a ribbing, but both of them concluded by saying that JetBlue was still their preferred airline. It is still my preferred airline. In nerdly news, is bigger better or just bigger? XM Radio, that's the one I selected because it offers Bob Edwards, and Sirius, which has Howard Stern, seem to be on the verge of a merge. Well, if this happens, Stern fans will be able to hear Edwards, and Edwards fans will be able to hear Stern. Chances are there's not much crossover there. What about hardware, though? Sirius and XM use different satellites in different orbits. They provide programming to mutually incompatible hardware. Somehow this seems somewhat inauspicious. At least when the Pennsylvania Railroad merged with the New York Central to form Penn Central, both companies were running railroads. And of course, we all know how successful that merger was. XM and Sirius both offer more than 100 channels of music. I suspect that most listeners pick maybe two or three that they listen to regularly. There are, of course, sports channels for baseball and hockey, even NASCAR. Okay, so I'm willing to pay $13 a month for an hour's worth of Bob Edwards Monday through Friday, along with the occasional trip to the 60s Channel, XMPR, and the BBC. But what happens when these guys combine? Without competition, the resulting company is going to be free to set whatever price it wants for basic service and charge extra for premium content. Does cable company come to mind here? For $50 a month, you get basic cable service. You want something that you might actually want to watch? Well, oh, sorry, that's extra. That may be where XM and Sirius are headed. I like the XM service. I really do. But if costs go up sharply, I can just as easily go back to listening to my iPod in the car. And now that podcasts are more than just an amusement for people who have too much time on their hands, the podcasting segment is a much more robust threat both to radio, terrestrial style, and radio satellite style. 
In other words, maybe satellite radio's 15 minutes of fame have come and gone. Apple and Cisco have reached an agreement. This week, the company settled their lawsuit over the iPhone trademark. Cisco had sued Apple, claiming to have previously trademarked the name in 2000. That's true. And that they had been using the name for a line of Internet telephones. That's uh, somewhat questionable. Apple and Cisco say that they will dismiss all suits and countersuits. Apple may continue to use the iPhone trademark and that they will cooperate to make Apple's iPhone, a cellular device, work in conjunction with Cisco's Internet iPhone. They pledge to cooperate on security issues. What wasn't clear is who exactly at this moment owns the mark. Does Cisco retain the trademark and license it to Apple, or did Apple obtain the trademark and license it back to Cisco? The agreement itself was secret. Apple's iPhone is scheduled to go on sale in June. It will work with AT&T Wireless Systems. AT&T Wireless, of course, is formerly singular. Thanks for listening. This has been TechBiter Worldwide for the week of February 25th, 2007. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website, www.techbiter.com, and you can send email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.